0: Hey, everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. Welcome back, everyone. This episode is packed to the brim with great content from Joe Dwyer. Joe is one of the founding partners at Manifold Group, which he helped co-found after witnessing some fractures and challenges in the venture capital industry, which, as you will see, we discuss at length. Prior to Manifold Group, Joe worked in early stage venture capital here in Chicago, but Joe is really a serial entrepreneur at heart, which I think you'll get a sense for over the course of our conversation. He has over 25 years of experience creating and growing new businesses such as the Virtual Market, Loan Surfer, Touchpoint Solutions, Artist Data, and Brill Street. Joe also got his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management and his JD from the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, where he was the recipient of the Order of the Coif. And if you did not attend law school or you've never seen the fantastic USA show Suits, that order is given to the top tier of law student graduates. Joe teaches Kellogg MBA students about entrepreneurship, and he is extremely active in the Chicago entrepreneurial community. He is a mentor for Techstars and a lecturer for the Founder Institute. He also happens to be my boss at Manifold, and I couldn't be more lucky to get to learn from him. I had an amazing time catching up with Joe on all things Venture Capital in Chicago, and with all of that said, here is our conversation. Joe, thanks so much for hopping on the show today. I really appreciate it. I'm very happy that you could be one of our first guests. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to kick things off by having you walk us through your background, and maybe we could break this into pieces a little bit. So you did your undergrad at Georgetown. And then what was next for you in your career? Where did you initially start out of college?
1: Well, actually, I'd I'd probably start a little bit before that. I was lucky enough to get a very early computer. I got a a very early Mac. I had one of the first, actually had a pre-release IBM personal computer because my grandfather's firm did work for IBM. And back then there weren't video games or other things like that. Back in the 1800s, basically. And so I, I learned to code, which was pretty important for me later. And I think for a similar reason, because there you know weren't video games or anything like that, and there are only so many books to read, my, my parents put me into a certificate program. So basically a non-degree, but otherwise full college program at Washington University in St. Louis for art. I actually had the pretty close to the equivalent of a college degree in art by 17 and had done a, a quite a bit of programming and had even been on the, the internet quite a bit, what was called the ARPANET at the time. So Tim Berners-Lee hadn't quite yet created the browser and all that, but we were still dialing in and all that. So I think it's important to, to point those out because then they later informed some of my decisions post-Georgetown. So I, I elected to go to Georgetown School of Foreign Service because I was fascinated by international relations and I, I, was, I have to admit I was super, super mature. That was sarcasm and wanted to be a spy. And Georgetown School of Foreign Service is well known for supplying said types to various three-letter organizations. And I went through school. I, I loved it. It was a fascinating learning experience. It's amazing all the way around. However, there was a hiring freeze in 1991 when I graduated college. And for various reasons, I I, I did end up operating a bit in that space. It was not at all what I expected. You've got what you see in the movies and then you've got the reality of me photocopying albeit top secret documents in a closed room with a 19 well, early 80s era photocopier you can imagine how entertaining that was
0: i love that i have to ask what were the early influences for you what were the books or movies or current events back then that really drove you to want to be a spy
1: i mean i can point out a few books some of which are still pretty popular rather Robert Ludlum and all of his books were influential so the born identity born supremacy all that and then there's some older ones Alistair MacLean that people may not be as familiar with but actually the the real interest was a bit more pragmatic at the time there was a, a lot of news coverage about narco-terrorism and the connection between illicit activities and the funding of, of terrorism and that was frankly really where I was interested And so my specialization at Georgetown was in uh, international security, specifically focused on Western European terrorism, which is unusual. At the time, Islamic uh, terrorism was not as big of a deal. And a lot of the most prominent terrorism was like the Baden-Meinhof gang and the whole army brigade and and people like that in in Germany and Eastern Europe and elsewhere. And I was fascinated by that, I, the The concepts of limited warfare and how asymmetric relationships and in, in force and capabilities could manifest in some pretty awful activities. Uh, frankly, a little bit of it dates back to the, the mid-1800s in Ireland when the Dwyer, I think it's called the Dwyer Brigade, my last name's Dwyer, obviously, and these are distant relatives of mine, apparently, did some pretty awful things. They were effectively terrorists, I think is fair to say. And I think it's also fair to say that the uh, the invaders of Ireland, the Brits, whatever, however you want to call it, I'm probably going to tick off a bunch of people here, but I'm really thinking there's really more history than anything else. But Oliver Cromwell and his son-in-law, Henry Ireton, in the 1850s got tired of what the, the Dwyer Brigade and others were doing, and came in and tit for tat for tit for tat for tit for tat. For tat. Um, so I was fascinated by how that happens. How, frankly, how otherwise theoretically rational and kind and caring human beings can can do truly terrible and and unacceptable things. And I I wanted to be a part of stopping it. So that was what, what went through my head. As I said, I I came out of of Georgetown at a time when the economy was wobbly, and particularly government spending was wonky, and Ended up doing like I said that sort of thing for a brief period of time. I quit, and then was uh, a bit aimless for a bit, trying to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. And I, I took inspiration from my my family, my parents, and my my grand one of my grandfathers, George Helmuth. He created one of the larger architectural firms in the world. Did a lot of international work. And you know I said he he built his business, but why can't I try to build a business? And it was a Pretty much of a left turn compared to everything I'd been studying. But it. But the reason I went back and mentioned that I had the degrees or the certificate in art and the, the experience coding is that I was able to leverage those in my ignorance, which was very important, to start a company in the early 90s, a web company, actually a design and web company. I didn't know how hard it was to create a company. I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I think if I had known, I I might have. So maybe I should just go get a normal job, but um, that's not what I did. I started a company, and so I'd love to tell you that I had a a well thought out business plan and that I had a very good idea what I was getting into, but that would not be truthful. So what I did was I I wanted to buy this really fancy Macintosh, um, you know, computer that I could do a lot of design and and coding with. And for everybody on the on this podcast who might be a little younger, I'm gonna tell you that I had to spend it. This this thing in in Totem cost about I think twelve or fifteen thousand dollars, and it had eight megabytes of RAM, maybe eighty megabytes of RAM. It's I know it's an order of magnitude difference, but either way, it's it's still just pathetic. I think it was eighty megabytes of RAM. Yeah, it was. But anyway, so I I wanted to get this computer system because then it would enable me to do this work. I had saved up some money, but not that much. I had credit cards, so I it on credit cards and used the cash I had. And my business model is very simple. The minimum payment on my credit card is $600 a month. I've got a full time job on the side. I've considered my full time job my side job. And I wanted to make sure that I could get work from people, anybody basically, to cover that $600 a month credit card payment that I had. And I am pretty fearless when it comes to social interactions and pretty determined. If I it's, it's you know, I've got my definitely got my weaknesses. But one of the things I'm pretty good about is if I decide to do something, I just go do it. And so I got in my car and I started driving around. I'm thinking in like, my back of my head, well, I gotta pay the, I gotta make the credit card payment this month. And I just started going to local businesses and saying, Hey, I can build you a website. I can design fill in the blank for you. And they agreed apparently. I did about twenty five thousand dollars worth of uh, revenue that month, which for me was At the time was just extraordinary so i quit my job my side job and did this full time i ended up hiring a bunch of people and we were off to the races so that was that was my first step my first real step post-college
0: and then you went on to start multiple early stage companies and i think at heart you really are a serial entrepreneur can you talk about some of the companies you started and the opportunities you pursued and then your decision to get your JD MBA from
1: Northwestern? Sure. My wife and I, we've been married for over 25 years, and we started that first company I mentioned really together before we got married, and then of course afterwards. And we identified a lot of opportunities because, you know, started first focused on services, then of course, a very natural transition is to start creating your own companies or businesses or assets. One of the first, the first really like sizable when we created was called the virtual market and it was in retrospect i'm obviously i'm biased but it was i think in a way prescient it was a b2b2c business this was a marketplace Uh, it's a concept that's working quite well now whatever almost 30 years later but fell absolutely flat on its face then we made a bunch of really you know rookie mistakes one thing was we targeted we were too early that's the most important thing. You can have everything lined up, but if it's not the right time for a disruption, it's not it's just not going to work. The other thing that was really embarrassing is that we decided to focus on the specialty food marketplace. If you were to make a list of the most ludite averse industries on the planet, that would fall somewhere in in that list. Um, so they loved, they we they liked us. We were nice and we, we were trying to help them and create more opportunity for them, and they the internet sounded neat they didn't do anything though and of course the other thing was some things that are just obvious to us now because we've been doing it for so long but fragmentation cost of selling how much gross margin are you going to make relative to the to the cost of of getting the account and servicing the account all this stuff. just in in so many ways it was a bad business model but we allocated a pretty good chunk of our cash to it lost Call it five hundred, seven hundred, fifty thousand dollars. We didn't really have, which almost sucked dry the other company, and you know caused us to uh, have to do some juggling, et cetera. It was very stressful, but it was, frankly, well worth the learning. When I hire or try to work with serial entrepreneurs, I really do look for the ones that have had failures. And most importantly, are willing to talk and evaluate those failures so they can learn from, because you learn a lot more from your failures than you do from your successes, I think. Anyway, so I took that, that knowledge and said, wow, that, this is way, hoo, way harder than I thought it was. And I'm not nearly as smart as I like to think I am. Now that's been a recurring theme over the decades, but I, my wife and I decided that we would be much more thoughtful about this. And we built a series of companies, one of which horseshoes and hand grenades almost went public. Like I was actually touring Wall Street, talking to bankers. We were trying to secure our bridge financing. It was a online mortgage business. We were one of the top handful in the world at the time, which really isn't saying much because this was late 90s and it just wasn't that much volume. But relative to everybody else, we were quite big. And while we were out on the trail talking to bankers and trying to get our bridge financing the dot bomb started to happen. And I think all of us knew the dot bomb was gonna happen. We knew there was gonna be a correction. We didn't know what it was gonna look like. We didn't know when it was gonna happen, but got a pretty good sense it was imminent. When I say all of us, I mean all the people in my situation that I knew. And so at the time that company was one of several different concerns that we either owned wholly or or in part. And we had already been planning for the, the likelihood of, of a correction. That one basically didn't survive. My wife and I have a, I, you might think of it as an interesting attitude, but we really, we don't get too excited when things go really well, but we also don't get too upset when they go poorly because we watched, you know, this company was, was in theory worth a billion plus dollars at the time, so it was a modern, you'd call it a unicorn. And that was the basis we were working with when we were considering taking it public and it went from being worth a billion to being worth pennies within a few months, right? It was a very rapid because as soon as we couldn't get our bridge financing uh, because the market started changing and you have 500 employees or I don't remember how many there were, but a lot. And there's a crunch on uh, mortgages and credit and fill fill in the blanks. You know, suddenly you have this thing that looks great, and the unit economics are working, and and there's a lot of enthusiasm about it, probably excessive enthusiasm about it. And then it suddenly, wait, this thing's not going to survive. So we did sell it, but you know, our very very large dollar amount of theoretical money ended up being a very small amount of of actual money. In, in parallel, like I said, we had some other assets we sold. One of them, I think, that before that happened, uh, we had another one that we thought would be one of the first casualties in the event of a, of a correction. And it was because it was more of a services firm, very advanced tech, but services business model. And we realized that's not going to survive, that the sort of advanced tech is going to be the first budget cut. So we started looking around and said, OK, what products could we build and own? So we have an asset that is you know, going to transition well through a correction. And uh, put a fair amount of time and energy and money into converting that team to a product team, building a product partners with partnered with some other. People who had a, who had a channel to take it to market, you know, put a chunk of money in, they actually put a chunk of money in and, and we ended up running that one through the correction and sold it. So we sold our share at least. It was acquired by Kodak, which is funny, but for a pretty good amount of money after that. So I, I kind of glossed through a lot of it. I did a bunch of different companies and was involved in a bunch of different companies one way or another and really had a lot of fun, learned a lot during the 90s and then into the very early 2000s. And I, my wife and I decided that was a lot of fun and it was fairly lucrative and, and it was also horrific in some respects. So let's take a break. I like to say I, I air quotes retired in the early 2000s. Air quotes, because I'll I'll die at my desk because I love what I'm doing. I, we had our first son in 2001. He's now a sophomore at Northwestern. Go Cats.
0: Go Cats.
1: Go Cats. He's, he's loving it there too. Just absolutely loving it. He wants to do all the majors, like math, cognitive science. I mean, he did the, the list of these crazy computer science. He wants to do all of them. I'm like, honey, you can't do all of them. <laughs> Joe, it
0: sounds like four years might not be enough for him.
1: No, uh, I... I think he, he's also looking forward to getting out there and doing stuff. He really likes, he's a doer as well. So I think I think he, his goal is cram as many majors as he can about the things he's interested in and then use them out in the real world. So I think he'll probably stick to that four-year thing, which is better for me anyway. College is not cheap. Anyway, so we, we took a few years off. By taking a few years off, that means we started a few companies, which is far for the course for us, but they were more lifestyle companies. We really had fun with them and i think it was when i a couple years in i I started trying to take one of our lifestyle companies and imagining what it could look as it look like as a startup and my wife said "Mm, mm, mm, you need to go do something else and of course she was right she usually is uh so I, i said what do i want to do with the rest of my life i mean i love startups i love early stage it's where all i think the real value creation is it's fun but what i don't like about it is the binary outcome and the volatility. So I don't like the whole the idea that you have to spend often five, seven, eight years to figure out whether a company is going to work and, and get the money back from it. But the odds are frankly, pretty high that it won't do anything. And then that, that just does that math doesn't really work for me. I really like uh, portfolio theory, or portfolio reality even better. And so I, I'd been on I'd received venture financing, I've been on boards with VCs and had a pretty good sense for what venture capital was and how it worked, or at least I thought I did and decided I would go into venture and I thought it would be really very useful to have an MBA if I did that and it would also probably help me get in because it's hard to get in and if I don't do this now I'll be way too old I mean I'm already old for an MBA at the time and so I decided I would go back then to to get my grad degree and then of course because I am who I am I said why not tack on an extra year and get a law degree too So I I did the three-year JD MBA program at Northwestern, which I cannot tell you how much I loved. It was an amazing experience with amazing people. I learned amazing things. The MBA teaches you a whole new way of thinking and a whole new set of tools. The same is true for the law, right? The law teaches you a, a whole new way of thinking. And frankly, in many respects, it's more useful for entrepreneurship than an MBA, which I can explain at some point if you're interested. But... Anyway, I, I loved that program. I worked, I, I was full-time through that program. And then I, I was also working as a, as a VC for a firm in Chicago through most of that program. And then I took, call it a leave of absence for about, call it six months, to be the CEO of a company I'd been on the board of. And that, that company, because I knew how to run that kind of company, and that company ended up selling. And so the reason I mentioned that is I landed in my full-time venture job, my full-time, real full-time venture job post-school, because I'd already been doing it for a number of years, but, um, and I had just been an operator again. And so I said, it was pretty interesting to land there and think, okay, I'm a venture capitalist. Wait, but I'm also an operator. I really like the operating. And I think it's really where really where the returns are. I don't like the volatility. I don't like the, the risk profile, but I sure do like the returns. Huh. Anyway, I'm operating as a venture capitalist and, and I'm starting to realize, wait, there's something wrong here. Or as as some of our family relatives might say, something ain't right. And I think it's it's very, very simple and objective. For an, organ, for an, for a, for an industry that accounts for almost 25% of the gross domestic product of our country to barely return capital to limited partners over the last several decades, doesn't make sense. Somebody is getting a tremendous amount of value because they're going from zero to a lot. And who is it? A lot of it's going to the founders. And that that makes sense because they're taking a big risk and they're absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. You know, VCs are critical too, but how is it that you can justify them making really good money? Because most VCs do really, in, in the end, I think make good money. Either they that or they, they wash out. But the money's not going back to the LPs. There's something wrong with the structure. And being the operator that I am, the entrepreneur that I am, I couldn't help but start to try to figure out what's going on, what's wrong. And frankly, I can't help avoiding, I can't avoid thinking, what can I do to fix it? And so my theory basically, it's a broader theory, but the core is that the 2 in 20 model, the, the, the way that venture capital funds are typically organized and compensated involves 2% per year for management fee times about 10 years. So about 20% of all the capital that goes into any fund is allocated towards uh, operating expenses. And most of which goes to the partner's salaries and the team salaries. That makes sense. And, in, and frankly, if you look at a small fund, that's it's really hard to live on that. But that's not the reality because if you're a, a venture capitalist, if you're a GP at a, at a fund and your first fund is successful, And it's relatively small. You're going to want your next one to be bigger because that two percent per year really makes a difference. And you you might be living kind of light thin, and so you're going to want to raise more money and and more money per partner, particularly because that's how you really increase your guaranteed compensation. But unfortunately, that starts to price you out of the early market. You get you know bigger later. You have to write larger. You either have to write larger checks, which is really what you have to do, or you can do some spray and pray early, which I'm not at all a fan of, and the returns for that are typically terrible. And so what you see is these funds with very capable, you know, venture capitalists moving later and later in the risk curve because it makes, you know, economic sense for them, but it really doesn't make economic sense for the LPs. And there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't make sense for the LPs. One of which is that very straight straight math, a risk and return are directly correlated. And as you move later in the risk curve with less risk, your returns are going to be reduced. Now, that's fine. That's really in the end, I think most most people who call themselves venture capitalists today are growth equity investors. They don't admit it. It's high I would think about it. And it's really important because the skills and the activities and the returns are very different for that than they are for early stage investing. But they've presented themselves to the market as venture capitalists with venture capital style returns. I don't know if people have been paying much attention, but if you look at what DCs said they were going to do in the 90s and the early 2000s versus what DCs say is a good return today, the numbers have changed dramatically, right? They've gone down. So the IRR used to be, you really were saying, I'm going to try to do 30, 40% IRR. And now, you know, if you're a 15 to 20% IRR, you're, you're. Top tier. There's also another top tier that's way above that, but that's a whole nother matter. And uh, you know, the the return on capital multiple. So they've done two things. They've they've changed what they're saying venture capital is, but they've also moved later in the risk curve. And what they end up having to do is they end up having to try to make these better returns that they're they're not promising, but you know, implying. And I think what they end up doing is they end up jamming cap tables with lots of money, making these companies take a ton of risk that most of which is inappropriate. And they break a lot of cap tables, break a lot of companies, and they're leaving dead bodies along the path to success. And then what they'll do is there's a much, much lower success rate uh, than there should be. And frankly, there's a much lower success rate than is commonly discussed, right? So you'll hear VC say, you know, one out of 10 succeed. You look at the real math from some Harvard research and elsewhere. It's more like one in 25. Now though that one in 25 can be truly amazing. Right, because they're going after these really big moonshots. So when they work, they can be transformative for a fund or several funds, frankly, because you make so much money with one fund that you get a pass for the next two. The problem is that in aggregate, as an industry, as an asset class, they're not. It's not enough to make the great returns. And I'll point out something else that's really worth looking at if anybody cares to. If you look at um, returns for venture capital as an asset class. Over time, as reported by, for example, Cambridge Partners, you'll see DPI TVPI, right? So there's going to be the the actual returned money, and then there's going to be the theoretical returned money. So it, it's based on the some market comp for your asset. It hasn't been liquidated yet, so you're having to use, say, this is what it's worth. You have to go back almost 10 years for the for the majority, for more than I think 70 or 80 percent of returns to be measured in actual cash. That's a long time. And what you'll see is every year, as these reports go through, the gap starts to narrow and it all comes down. So there, the, it's very easy for me to see, and I'm gonna write a blog post and do the whole expose on this. Woo, I'm a investigative journalist. What you'll see is that they're overvaluing the assets their holdings. And I think this is, it's the unicorn economy, which to me is ridiculous. Most of the unicorns out there, in my opinion, are worth nothing like what they're valued at. And there are a couple of things that are worth talking about there. One is, is there's a very strong interest in the part of the venture capitalists to have them valued publicly, which is unusual, right? You didn't used to go out there and say, hey, we just invested it's at a $1.7 billion valuation. You didn't announce that before. The reason to announce it is to make it clear to the market, A, how successful you are. I get PR, I get LPs, get money but also to try to cement this notion that this company is actually worth $1.7 billion. Of course, that makes the VC look good, makes them look like their returns, at least on paper, are good. And, but the problem is that if you actually look under the hood and look at some of these deals, which I've had occasion to do on multiple occasions, for example, helping RLPs evaluate investment decisions alongside some of these funds, they are in no way appropriately marked at that $1.7 billion, for example. And there are so many ways, if you are a sophisticated investor, to have a nominal valuation that has nothing to do, literally nothing to do with the actual valuation. I'll give you one simple example. I looked at a deal that was, I think, valued nominally at $5 billion. But really what it was, was a, it was a combination of factors, including a call option, but most importantly, a guaranteed return, literally a guaranteed return. So it did not matter when this thing goes, it was, it was, a, it was a bridge to pub, going public. No matter what happened in that public offering, the investors in this round were going to make X times their money. That means the valuation's immaterial. It just, that doesn't, whatever. And I, and I said as much to the people, I advised them not to make the investment uh, because I actually thought there were some structural weaknesses in the business. And then I won't say too much, but it turned out I was right. I'm not always right, but I was right at that time. Anyway, there's another thing that's going on, and it's you say to yourself, well, okay, fine. Wait, why do the limited partners who are smart and rent-seeking, why, why do they Why do they allow this to keep happening? And I think there's a couple of reasons why this is happening. Number one is, and it's a larger theme that plays all the way back to uh, this notion that early stages where all the real returns are uh, and where VC is iffy. And that is that data availability, transparency, AI, or pseudo-AI really is all we've got today. That have mean that alpha has left the building, right? So the differentiated returns are gone. They're almost entirely gone from the public markets. You know, they're almost almost entirely gone from the later stage private markets too. And they're leaving every place except for places where there is significant opacity, right? And where execution is the real determinant of success. And early stage is one of the very few places where that is true, right? You do not you, you can't price uncertainty. You can't even evaluate performance with any sort of objective measure. It's a thing that just chafes so many investors. They don't know how to deal with it. They hate it. I love it. I love the complexity. You can root through it. You can understand it. You can price it. It's just really hard. And at least as of now, AI and data transparency have not met the early stage markets. And you you cannot just price them. You can't, you can't find Alpha, you have to make alpha in the early stages. Anyway, the reason I, I point that out is money is trying to find returns. Returns are depressed. Differentiated returns are depressed. So you have all these asset allocators, their job is to figure out where to put money and make more money than other al- asset allocators are. To make more money than than would otherwise happen. Otherwise just buy an index fund, and buy, buy a bit of everything. And these asset allocators in many cases are consultants or their captured captive employees of a very large organization or a fund of funds, and by and large they're very smart people, right? Because they're handling large dollar amounts and all that. I will say that there's a surprising number of them, from my experience, that actually aren't. But that's a whole other conversation. And there there's a divergence of interest between the individuals involved and the organizations involved. And sometimes there's multiple organizations involved, and there's divergent interest between them as well. So let's say that. There's a pension fund, say a fireman's pension fund, and it's being there's a, it's managed by fund, pension fund managers who work with consultants usually to help them figure out where to allocate their capital. And those consultants, they're measured based on their performance, right? And the pension fund's core measure of success is, am I getting my 7% net cash per year to meet my obligations consistently? And even better, am I getting my 7% and I'm building slightly building up my asset base? The answer is no. For a long time, no. Okay. But anyway, so say you're an individual working in one of those jobs and you're trying to prove that you're doing a good job, you have to allocate to private equity and venture capital. The returns aren't elsewhere, right? There's no alpha or very little alpha elsewhere. And so you're allocating there, but they're actually not giving you great returns. But then the VCs come to you for a couple of your your holdings. And they say, hey, guess what? Look what look what we've done. Look at these great investments we made. Look how much money we're making on it. Okay. it's Not money, cash money, but it's value because clearly it's value because other people are investing. This sovereign wealth fund that has so much money, it literally doesn't know what to do with it, decided to invest along with us. And they have absolutely no experience in this. I really don't know what they're doing, but their participation proves it's actually worth it. And so what do you do as an asset allocator? You're like, you say, no, I called BS. No, you say, buddy, good job you did because what a good job I did giving you the money. Huh. wow, we're cool, aren't we? And then you tell your boss and your boss tells his or her boss and you know on down the chain. And then you go get your next job at a bump up in pay because you did such a good job for your last one. Your replacement comes in and looks at all the asset holdings and says, this is a pile of crap. This isn't worth anything what they're saying. That last guy was stupid. I'm smart. I'm going to fix it. Rinse and repeat. And this has been going on for a long time. And by the way, I'm not just making this stuff up. I have had extensive conversations with the people who are actually doing this and the people who deal with the people who are actually doing this. And I've never had anybody who's in a not position of knowledge here refute what I'm saying. It's a little little hyperbolic, but you you get this is a decent picture of what's happening out there. And By the way, point out one other thing that's happening out there. The asset allocators, the traditional asset allocators, the big ones who have respect and trust, who've been around for decades and decades, and I'm not going to make friends here, but that's okay. They're not really my friends anyway. They really understand bonds and stocks and real estate in a way that I will never understand it, okay? But my direct experience is that not only do they not understand venture and private equity, but particularly venture, they really don't understand it. And I'm talking about people who are allocating tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that are make or breaking, making or breaking pensions for teachers and firefighters, et cetera. I had the head of venture, the worldwide head of venture for one of the very largest asset allocation consultants. In the world, very well respected. Okay, this person again, head of venture capital, asked me the following: Joe, when you acquire your portfolio companies, what are the CUSIPs and the associated debt covenants related with those related to those acquisitions? My jaw—I actually broke my jaw when it hit the ground. I had to have my jaw wired shut for six months. Um, of course, that's total BS, but. That I mean, that, how do you answer that question? Anyway, I don't, I don't, I'll leave it at that. That's that's factual. I'll just leave it at factual. And another fact is I had to fill out a sheet for this organization where approximately 50% of the sheet. And this is, by the way, the venture team. This is not the private equity team. It's the venture team. And only do venture. Okay. 50% of the questions they asked literally didn't answer apply, like never apply to venture capital. These are the people who are allocating capital for everyday Joe and Jane. And it's really sad and it's part of the larger picture of the problem in in venture capital. So probably got off on a little bit of a tangent there. We
0: love tangents here at Chicago Capital, but that actually leads us to Manifold, which I'd love to touch on because I think you started Founder Equity and Digital Tent All those years ago, in some ways, as an antidote to some of the fractures and the problems that you and your other partners were seeing in the venture capital landscape. Could you talk to us about Manifold today and the rebranding we've just gone under, and maybe how you view us as, again, this antidote to the problems that still exist in the
1: ecosystem today and why we're different? I started Manifold, we started Manifold, three of us, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. And one of the core ideas was. All right. Venture capital, it's an absolutely critical. Industry it accounts for most of the net new job creation in the United States, it creates tremendous asset value. But as for the reasons we mentioned before, it's it's really not working for the limited partners. Therefore, the current state of affairs, at least in venture, is not sustainable. We love venture. We also love entrepreneurship. What would we do differently? If we could start with a clean slate, what would we do differently? And, and we made a list of things that we would do by the way, some of this is in a way fabricated, right? In that I'm applying retroactively concepts we've come up with since. It, they're partly true, but they're not entirely true. So I am i don't want to pretend that we walked in this, we had this very clear idea of what we were going to do. That is not the case at all. But we did come in knowing the, the problems and beginning to discuss what we might do differently. So I don't want to exaggerate uh, how much clarity we had at the time. So one of the things was, we want to own assets, right? We believe in assets. We believe in early stage. We believe that venture is super interesting, and we want to figure out a way for us to have holdings in these assets, uh, but not to be stuck in the traditional venture capital model. It took us a few years to sit back and realize, okay, we we should do a fund and we can't charge fees because if, if we don't believe if we believe fees create a conflict of interest and a long-term instability, we can't do them. No matter how much we'd love to. And then another key thing is we believe that you have to make alpha, not find it. And so we wanted to create a team and assemble a team uh, that was capable of making alpha, being very active, right? Diligence, creating companies, clearly had some concepts of incubating our own companies because frankly, that was probably, that came before even really thinking about investing as a core strategy because we're operators and it's cheaper for us in some ways to start a company than to fund one. And so. We put all that together, but there's a direct conflict between large team of experts, like on staff, and no management fees. Uh-oh. What we decided to do was to create the team first to get it optimized and then start start taking risks on uh, investing and, and incubation. A lot of people think entrepreneurs are, you know, gamblers, and that I think it couldn't be further from the truth for most of us. We're we're calculated risk takers. We will take very significant risks as long as, the, as long as the calculations work out properly. We probably are willing to risk more, more downside than most people are, but only when the, the odds are grossly in our favor. And so we said, wait, okay, we, what if we built out this team and we charged for their services? We could build the team out. We could have a you know, net neutral or maybe even some profits along the way. We could practice. And, and it would be a lot safer platform uh, play, right? And so we, that's what we did. And in the beginning, uh, we worked a lot with earlier stage companies because that's what we understood and were able to execute on. They're not great payers and the projects you know, are fragmented and small. So pretty naturally we moved a lot more towards enterprise, which are great payers and really needed our help. In fact, I teach it. At Kellogg and I teach, depending on the time, various things. But one of the core things I teach is a course of my design called building innovation teams and cultures. And what it, it explores is, what's the difference between uh, optimizing a known business model and creating a new one? And how do you act, you know, differently and specifically what, how, what are all the things you need to do in order to properly establish the business, lead it, run it, create a effective culture and put all roll all that together, we realized Way we can really help these enterprises do this because the same things that make enterprises good at what they do, optimizing a business model, are the things that often make them bad at creating a new one. And and since we could partner with them, they could pay us for it, everybody would be happy. There's something else that happened over the years, and that is that we learned a new appreciation for the qualities and assets of enterprise. It's pretty easy as an entrepreneur or even a venture capitalist to demean or diminish enterprises, right? Slow, ponderous, risk averse, often in- inefficient. And those are all frankly true for the most part, but they miss a big piece of the puzzle. They are filled with extremely smart people on average who have a wide variety of knowledge, networks, uh, relationships. They have tons of assets of various different kinds, brands, data. They are There are these, there's these like pots of value that are being deployed towards a known business model at this time. But if you could divert or reallocate some of those capabilities and resources and assets to disruption, man, you got a powerful mix there. So we started realizing that there's actually a, there's more return, more opportunity at the nexus between enterprise and startups than there is in either side separately, which was an interesting, you know, learning experience for us. Anyway, so we, We created this consultancy. It's done extremely well over the years. We have major clients, household name clients that have been with us for years. And that funded building out this team of designers, VCs, software engineers, data scientists, digital marketers, et cetera, which we then began to deploy towards investment sourcing and and investments. We raised a separate fund owned by the same three partners, but otherwise operationally and organizationally separate operationally similar, but organizationally separate. We did not charge fees. We were able to do that in part because we took a hit as partners, but also because we had this team that was being supported by the advisory and consulting business and began making investments. We learned very quickly how to make better and better investments. And we ended up having a a very good uh, track record so far for that, which is just continues to get better. I won't say what our IRRs are for two reasons. One because we've only had 3 exits so far and and so most of them are unrealized and I don't want to toot my own horn when I already made fun of other people for their unrealized valuations. And anyway, and the other reason is because they're so high that they're not really they don't seem believable. Anyway, we started doing the, the venture investing and then started moving naturally towards incubation in, in, with our studio. We did that out of the consultancy, right? Cause it was owned by the partners and we took our own risk with our own capital to kind of figure it out and get our feet wet doing that. I think you'll see a pattern here. We like to understand things and figure them out before we really put a lot of risk capital into them, which again, I think is very common for serial entrepreneurs who figured out just how hard these things are, uh, but particularly true for us anyway. So we, we started doing the incubation with mixed success. And the reason I think for that is because. It was ad hoc, unorganized, and sparse. I mean, it was we did have some great success in some respects, but it just wasn't like shining. And we said to ourselves, what do we need to do to really make all this stuff work? Well, what we really are is we're really just one company. We might have three different sets of activities and two different legal entities, but we're really just one company. And, and we're, we're a venture holding company. We, we have capital. We allocate it towards growth opportunities value creation opportunities, managing these fiduciary duties separately is difficult. And the synergies between the three sets of activities are immense. We really should capitalize on them. The best way to do that is just to say, fine, we're going to roll this all under one organization and that organization is manifold. We took the GP interest in the fund and and rolled it in the LP interest is completely unchanged. really only benefits them because we've got a much larger, better capitalized organization to further the interests of our LPs in that fund. Many of those same LPs have invested in Manifold and we rolled all, rolled all together. We've got advisory group, we've got the venture investing, we've got the studio and the synergies are immense. As I mentioned, a VC is better when he or she understands how to operate and has experience doing that and it understands how to engage with enterprises and, and provide strategies. Examples would be our enterprise customers come to us with problems and say, look, I can't fix this. There's just no way I literally can't fix it because if I fix it then all my I'll be a spoiler for the market. Somebody needs to fix this. Would you fix this? And then we'll either create a company to do that or we'll go find a company to invest in who does that. And there are lots of other other synergies. But what we realize is over the last 10 years, again, not to like not to act like we had a plan in the beginning because we really didn't, but we have created a perpetual engine for value creation, focusing on disruption, inflection points. So we try to get in when things really are risky and complicated and messy, where we're comfortable and most people aren't. We then apply capital and talent to, to get them over the chasm to the point where there are many fewer uncertainties and the risks are more you know, visible. And there's clear evidence of growth and an opportunity there. And, and the, what's worth a dollar beforehand is worth $10 afterwards. So straddling that sort of uh, chasm, that inflection point is extremely valuable. And we've been able to do it very consistently, which is why our, our IRRs have been able to be high. And now we're, we're really beginning to scale. We have our main office is Chicago. We have teams all over the country, but some concentrations in Dallas and Los Angeles. We're now expanding into Atlantic Canada, which is a very fertile area for technology and startups et cetera. we're looking for some other international expansion we've always had our fingers in at least personally into crypto and it's interesting how crypto now increasingly looks a lot like a new mode of startup so less focusing on the currency aspects and more focusing on all the things that we're used to doing in terms of evaluating teams and problems they're solving and and the technology they're using it's very comfortable for us to do it and the rate of asset value creation is frankly an order of magnitude faster in in crypto and guess what easy liquidity right you got a token you do well it goes it's worth from like a, a tenth of a cent and suddenly it's worth 50 bucks each and oh my gosh it really is worth 50 bucks each you know how i know that because i can go sell them for 50 bucks each so that's that's something we're really interested in and obviously we have a big data science AI crew and capability. So initiatives around that are really important for us. We have a hush-hush concept about how we're gonna bring some of that to market in a really interesting way, which I'll tell you off, offline, but I'm not telling the audience for now. We've got we're increasing emphasis on hard tech. We have some theories about layered technology and enablement. So how the internet and mobile and, and cloud have been enabling technologies, a lot of along with a lot of other enabling technologies that have created social and economic uh, changes that are really just now beginning to manifest in some respects. And that there's a certain level of maturity in the sort of the surface only parts of the market right now, but the new enabling underlying techs and some simple ones like AR, VR, harder ones like energy generation and storage, material science, these are all now, I think like huge opportunities Especially since the, so many other enabling tech technologies have come along, and our society is moving much more quickly. And then, of course, COVID caused an absolute shock to the world, but it had you know it had so many caused so many horrible problems and for everybody. But it did also accelerate the the rate and nature of change in a lot of areas. So we're looking a lot at hard tech transfer. We're pretty unusually suited to that. A few other areas international. One of our big beliefs is that Alpha has left the mainstream assets. So I believe that whereas Silicon Valley and Boston used to have a, pre, a stranglehold on on you know, talent and major disruptions, I do not believe that's the case anymore. I think talent and knowledge and opportunities have spread across not just the, the the United States, but across the world, and we're gonna go where the opportunities are.
0: And I think that's a good segue into Chicago Obviously, we are internationally focused here at Manifold, but we are based in Chicago. I'd love to hear your assessment of the state of the Chicago startup community landscape and the venture capital ecosystem here. How has it evolved since you started working in venture capital here? And what do you think is required for this community to continue to grow?
1: Well, there's been a dramatic change, uh, a really, really dramatic change. I mean, I first arrived in Chicago in 2004, like fall of 2004. And pretty quickly was, you know, involved in the scene and it was scene was de minimis at the time. And since then we've become much larger, more better known but much better known. There's many more capital sources, the key schools in the area have all really stepped up in everything in terms of both education but also support, infrastructure, et cetera. We've had you know organizations like eighteen seventy one and Techstars have been really important in building out the ecosystem here. And there's an increasing amount of interest from some of the mainstream venture funds, for example, in in investing in Chicago. We've had some misses. We've had some embarrassing misses. You look at, it's like we have not had as many big exits as I think we should have. We've had the debacle with, I forget the name of the company, that was valued very Highly, but really wasn't worth what they said it was worth, and maybe they had medical screens in offices, and they really weren't doing the kind of volume they said. Outcome Health. Anyway, that's not a good look for Chicago, right? So there've been some problems along the way, and there've been a few of those actually, maybe not to that scale, but but Chicago has a tremendous amount going for us. We have a very moderate cost of living compared to other comparable cities. We have a, a great work ethic and great sort of just attitude from the people who populate the area. There's an increasing amount of capital available, amazing schools, multiple amazing schools, like world-renowned schools. We're a very collaborative uh, city. Very, very few people don't fall into the camp of, hey, we're all together in this. We're trying to make this happen. For Chicago and for the world, I love Chicago. I think it's a fantastic ecosystem. It's a fantastic culture. Another thing I think is really important about Chicago that the People don't talk about very much in terms of venture but we have a very diverse economic base here we have all different kinds of industries and that means that there are enterprise partners for pilots there are investors strategic acquirers there are this witch's brew of key ingredients for a very successful ecosystem and again the weight and, and opportunities that used to really be the gravitational weight in, that used to be centered in in the hubs is no longer nearly as strong, and I think Chicago has a good chance to become an increasingly important part of the, the venture ecosystem. I will point out again it's a few weaknesses. We've had some misses and with some big exits. I think we need to get some more of those, put put ourselves on the map a bit a bit better. I do not think that the tax and fiscal you know regime here in in Illinois is conducive to anything, frankly. I don't know what I would do better. I'm glad I'm not in JV's position, who, by the way, is an amazing, awesome guy and a personal friend. So, you know, it's easy for me to take pot shots, but I think it is something that needs to be worked on. I'll, I'll put a plug in. Not that anybody's really going to listen to what I have to say, but I might as well try anyway. And that is, I believe that crypto, cryptographic assets, and specifically what I refer to as the, the age of the protocols, Right. So it's the decentralized protocols that are changing the nature of our economy. And I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to it. I'm writing a piece on it. I'm very firmly of the opinion that the next 25, the last 25 years were the internet. The next 25 years are the protocols. It's going to change so many things. And if we as a city do not very aggressively seek crypto friendly, decentralized, decentralization protocol friendly, regulatory environment we are going to be missing out on a lot there are very few things that could cause me to move out of chicago one of them is if we were blocked from doing certain kinds of business here effectively due to regulatory problems or an irrational grab of income or constraints that are unreasonable so that's a little cautionary thing there but overall I think venture capital and entrepreneurship in Chicago is very strong and, and growing, I think much more quickly than many other places. We are we have the scale, the talent, the infrastructure, the attitude, the the schools, we have all the things necessary to be extremely successful if we continue to work together, continue to work towards effective reg- regulatory schemes, etc. So pretty bullish about Chicago.
0: And I think it's still so early. I think it's it's very early for the ecosystem compared to Silicon Valley or New York. And I think Manifold and other great Midwest-based VCs are hopefully going to play some role in the community growing and and helping the startups founded here really succeed on a national level. But with that, Joe, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. This has been an amazing episode, and I know listeners are going to love our conversation and probably want to have you back on the show as soon as possible. There are so many topics that we could probably pick and dive deeper on and really go down more tangents, but I'm going to let you go for today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoy it. I I love thinking about and, and talking about these sorts of topics. They're my passion. And I'm, as you can tell, very passionate about early Sage, Chicago. So thanks for having me on. and Thanks for listening. Hope people have enjoyed it.
0: Thanks again, Joe. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.